Hello and welcome to the Say What is Truth podcast with me, your host, Joni Haas. I want to give a big thank you to all the listeners, all the people who make it possible. If nobody listened, then there would be no point in me doing the podcast. I'm grateful for every review, every rating, every comment, and every email. Thank you to Dory, who recently sent me an email telling me what the podcast meant to her. Those are the things that keep me going. I really appreciate it. So thanks, Dory, and everyone else who is listening. Those who have listened from the beginning, or maybe those who have found the podcast and then gone back and listened to past episodes, will remember that episode 7, entitled Billy, was with my mom, who has since passed away. I thought that it would be fun and provide a balance to invite my dad to also come be a guest. So this week, this episode is with my dad, Ron. Uh, My dad has now been without my mom for a few months, who was his wife for more than 60 years. And it was good to talk to him about his feelings surrounding that, how things have changed for him. It's been such a big change for him. And, you know, my dad's a funny guy. It was good to get his stories, his perspectives. And I'm glad that I have this conversation with him for posterity. I did not plan it this way, but it is so serendipitous that uh, just in the order that I recorded episodes, the publication of this episode happens to land on September 8th, which is my mom's birthday. So my mom would have been 82 today. Happy birthday in heaven, mom. I hope that you're having the best party you've ever had. Without further ado... Here is my dad, Ron. How do you feel about me asking you to do this? No problem. Yeah. When I asked mom to do it, did... It make you be like, oh, I want to do it. Did I? I thought about maybe. Yeah, I think I did. (laughs) I thought maybe I should do it too at that time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Did you listen to the one that I did with mom? Yes. And did it reveal anything to you, or did you pretty much be like, "Yep, that's that's just the way it is." Yeah. That's just it is was or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask this first only because I think that you talk beautifully, but we have noticed that when it comes to pure audio, sometimes your bees come out like these. And so I figured that'd be a good place to start talking about why that is. Do you want to talk about oh, why my voice sounds like a V instead of a B? Yeah. I so think that was I, a pretty good B. Good job. <laughs> I think... I think it has something to do with the shape of my mouth since of the change that took place. Yeah. And so I have to enunciate more carefully because people almost always say, veal? Yeah. No, it's not veal. It's veal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so why? what happened to your mouth? Well, uh, yeah. th- th- this operation that took place four years ago, because I had cancer in my jawbone, and uh, and by jaw we mean 
upper jaw. Upper jaw. By the nose. Tooth, well, tooth le- above the tooth level. Right, but but not when people hear jaw. Sometimes they think oh, like, no, mandible. Oh, yeah. No, right. Okay. It's they, upper jaw. Upper left jaw tooth in the tooth. Yeah. Tooth level. Sort of Up right. High. Right next to the nose a little bit. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that and that required, because it was cancer, it required an operation that uh, removed that infected bone and the teeth associated with it, which was eight teeth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then to, to rebuild that jawbone, I had to take a bone out of my leg uh, to, to yeah to restore that, and the process was a thirteen-hour operation. Yeah, and that was uh, really rough. And uh, although everybody says I recovered nicely or normally or whatever, it it was not easy by oh, any means. No. and the process of Regaining my uh, operation of my mouth, I I used a, a little tool. I used it every day. Uh, you had to stick it in your mouth and then open your mouth super wide, right? It forced my mouth open. Yeah. That little machine forced my mouth open, and uh, and I did. I otherwise it would have probably healed. And I probably wouldn't have been able to get my mouth open very much. Right. The right. therapist who worked with me on that uh, said that I did a good job. I mean, meaning I did it regularly enough to, that accomplished what was supposed to accomplish. Um, it was uh, a long process. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I did it. Thera- it's called a therabyte. That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. I pulled out that therabyte because I was thinking... Is my mouth really opening like it should and stuff? So I I used it for a couple of uh, oh, two or three days off, off and on. And I thought, oh, I, and then it's got a measure on it so you can tell at what degree. And I thought, oh, it seems to be doing okay. So I haven't done it since. Yeah, yeah. And I measure. I, I do have a little challenge in what seemed like getting my mouth open right you know, to take food uh, with, you know, so I, I'm able to eat. <laughs> That's the important thing. Yeah, well, so so a few weeks ago I was here and I was looking through my Instagram and I found pictures from um, during that time because I, my sister and I spent a lot of time at the hospital. We made sure that one of us was there pretty much constantly throughout the surgery and your recovery that while you were in the hospital and <clears throat> I was showing you pictures and and reading the captions and kind of uh, it looked as though it was almost a surprise to you you began to cry and um and you said something like I, I don't really think about it very often but that was a pretty hard thing <laughs> And I get a little emotional now when I think about it because I've gone back over the pictures and the the daily re- report that was written up about it. And I thought, that was a dang big deal. Yeah, it really was. And so, f- 
from my perspective, you know, I, I have a picture of you and I the night before you went in for the surgery. And um, you played it cool, which you always do, but you were clearly nervous about it. And by the time I got to the hospital the day of your surgery, you'd I thought I was going to be there for what, when you woke up, which I was, but the surgery took so long. And um, so we waited even longer. And, um, you know, it's just this nervous energy. I remember mom and Margie and I were all coloring these little coloring pages trying to pass the time. <laughs> so the surgeon came out and talked to us. Ron's through surgery. We're going to wheel him out in a little bit. So then he explained exactly what he'd done, how he had taken a portion of your leg bone because only one of your leg bones actually bears any weight. So one of them is not necessary. So you've got just like a floating end of a bone in your leg now. Uh, but they also took, they didn't like go in and take bone out. They, they took that whole portion of your leg, including the muscle tissue and the skin and the, and they left a bunch of blood vessels intact so that they made the outside of your leg the new roof of your mouth so so you have leg skin as the roof of your mouth and I remember asking him what if you have a hairy leg do you have a hairy mouth and he said yeah you do and I'm like oh for some reason I was so concerned about you growing hair on the inside of your mouth. It, like, I was so, so worried about it. <laughs> and then we realized that for some reason you don't really have very much hair on your legs, so that that's no, great. No, but no, no. but um, then they had to take the blood vessels and, like, thread them through your neck and attach them to existing blood vessels so that, you know, that tissue would stay alive. And when the first time I saw you... You know, the incision was really apparent that went up from your lip over around your nose and then almost all the way up to your eye. And they had just cut that and just peeled your whole face off. <laughs> yeah. When I think about that, I think about what somebody must look like if they've been in a wreck. Yeah. And they have to put them back together, their face back together and right. stuff like that. So that... That little incision, kind of right in the middle of my center of my lip, right under my nose, goes around my nose and up around, and you can't even see. Right. The, the, it, you really have to work close. Right. They did a great job, and and really the only reason that you can see it at all, or the most apparent thing about it is, it took how long before they could fit you with new teeth? Oh wow! Almost two years, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, a long time. So during that time, you just, you know, had kind of that one snaggle tooth because it took your two front teeth, which I, yes, I remember was kind of devastating to you. Like, so that first night that you were in surgery, you were out of it. And then the next day, uh, you couldn't speak. You you had a trachea. a trachea, and so you had your little whiteboard to ask questions or express a need or something. And I look over and you're writing how many, and none of us wanted to tell you because they had told you it could be four to six teeth, and 
I, I remember standing by your bed and saying eight. They had to take eight teeth. And you shaking your head just like, oh, no, 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 no. And I, of all the times that I've ever watched anyone um, go through something difficult or suffer or anything, I have never felt such a palpable sense of helplessness and pure sorrow for you the day after that surgery. You were so, so miserable and feeling sick to your stomach and you kept needing to throw up, but you had a trachea and you couldn't speak and you just kept shaking your head almost. It looked like you were just saying, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember it quite that re exact, but, but I remember now as we think about it, it was not... I mean, we, we talk about it uh, casually now, but it was not a casual experience oh, no, in, in no. any way whatsoever. And I think, oh, and I'm so grateful that I've survived and that I am doing as well as I am doing. Right. Um, there, I, I, oh, sure, I've got some age on me, but I'm not, I'm not um, dying, so to speak. Sure. I've got a lot, of, lot left in me. Because I'll be going, you know, I got a lot of things to do. I got a lot of years to live. I told Billy I'd live to 100. Well, I'm not sure I'll live to 100, but if I do, that'd be just an extra blessing yeah. along, along the way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, so during the time that um, you were healing, and then, of course, you had to do radiation therapy, and oh, that yeah. was really tricky. Um, and, or I did radiation, and then I did... Uh, hyperbaric treatment too. Yeah. The idea of the hyperbaric treatment was to encourage the healing process in hopes that my jaw would accept implants. Yeah. And uh, and then when we went and and later and I'm wondering if I were encouraging it or pushing it that it wasn't really time and you know cuz I wanted things to move on and move on. And maybe asking for implants too soon was mm. not... Um, I think about that now because the implants did not hold. I was, actually, it was on the day that I was back for a checkup. And I said, you know what, we'll just drop down. It was in South Salt Lake, so we'll just drop down and see the, the uh, prosthodontist. That's what he is. And... Uh, he looked at that, and not chuckled per se, but smiled a little bit, and he says, well, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. Here's some polygrip. Good luck. Yeah. And the polygrip is still in the um, drawer, and I've never used any polygrip, and my t my denture stays in place good. So yeah. it's good, good. Uh, it looks pretty good. Uh, uh, it feels like I got a foreign body in my mouth yeah. all the time. Yeah. And but I take it out and clean it every day and put it back in. But for someone who didn't know what had happened to you, really the only indication that anything happened is that during the time that you didn't have those teeth, um, the left side of your mouth where that incision is atrophied just a little bit. Yeah. So you've got just a little. So when I smile, it makes a little bit of a loop. Yeah, on yeah. That side. And so it does make it difficult for you to close your mouth all the way for like mm -hmm. the B sound. 
But other oh, than that's that, why the, the V sounded like a V. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was a rough thing, and and it was really rough to watch you. But one of the things that I was always so impressed with was uh, your attitude throughout was just like, I'm, I'm going to do what they say, and I'm going to get better. You know, like there was, there, you, I don't know if you ever felt sorry for yourself, but um, you didn't ever act like you felt sorry for yourself. And I, I remember you telling me that the radiologist said that you seemed to be healing better than most of their patients, not just most of their older patients, but most of their patients. Because you were, what, 79? 79. 79 at the time. And, uh, and I... I think that they, I remember you telling me that they said that a lot of it was your attitude and that the power of believing you're going to heal kind of like makes it so sometimes. Well, which, yeah, I think, I think that's a fact. I think in anything that we do, if you believe you can do it or your, your mental attitude is, hey, I can do that. I may not know how, but I bet I can figure it out. Yeah. A lot of stuff that we do on a on a pretty much a daily basis is based on our willingness to move forward in whatever it takes. Now you know we all know that I'm not a scholar or anything like that, but but I have enough ingenuity that I can figure out a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. and and that's not bragging. That's just factual. I think that comes from training with my up, upbringing, uh, I kind of had to figure out some things along the way. Um, my, my best teacher, I still think, was my big brother who raised me from seventh grade on. And he was a good example. He was a little coarse and a little tough sometimes, but he was, he was a good teacher. Yeah. And I followed his example because he was of the nature that he tried to do or yeah, do things. It, maybe he didn't know how, but he figured out how, and maybe that's where I got a lot of that from. Mm, yeah, so that's a good segue into talking about your growing up years. Your mother passed away when you were seven years old. I wasn't seven yet. Oh, six years old. Yeah, I, I've been telling people wrong my whole life. That's all right. Uh, it's close <laughs> enough. <laughs> I was just a little shaver, that's for sure. And uh, and you were the youngest of her seven children, and then your dad had three older children from a previous marriage before her. So um, there there was quite an age difference between your mom and dad, right? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you had lots of older siblings. This was, you know, during the 40s. And uh, you got bounced around all over the place. You know, I really can't remember where all I was in all, in all those years. And, and the interesting thing is, I don't remember how it came about that I went where I went. I, the first place I remember being was with Elizabeth. Your sister. My sister, Elizabeth. Oh, well, to begin with, I was I was just turning seven, and Dad kept us together in Ogden, Utah, for at least two years. 
as and, being the three youngest. Uh, of us three youngest, yeah. tried to keep us together. And so you can imagine what that must have been like uh, for him to uh, have to go off to work, leave three little kids um, to vie for themselves and get to school and do all the things they're supposed to do. And then, I don't know what all we did, but I'm sure we got into a lot of mischief. That's all I can remember. <laughs> so... <laughs> My understanding, and I could be wrong because this is obviously, you know, I wasn't around for any of it, but from from the way I've pieced things together, you'd stay with one of your older siblings until there was some reason why it wasn't working or your needs weren't being met or something. And so then probably the adults would talk amongst themselves and say, can any of you take these kids? Can... <laughs> so you'd go with somebody for a while, do a school year here, do a school year there. The year, the year I, I was ten, school was getting ready to go, and Marshall and Noni had come to Idaho, and I think that's the year they got married. Mm. And they said, "Well, why don't you just come back with us?" So I went to California. Just they, you? Yeah, just me. Yeah. Started school. This is the fifth grade. Okay, they realized pretty soon that I wasn't a very good reader. So they encouraged me to, they got me a couple of books and said, do storybook stuff. And so you need to read these so to help improve my reading skills. It, it, was, a, it was a good year. Marshall, oh, uh, during school we, uh, we were talking about pioneers and Marshall helped me because he had some carpenter skills and tools. He helped me make a, a pair of oxen, cut out a pair of oxen for our uh, display, for our, uh, for our school project, whatever it was. I remember that really good. And then come spring, uh, Noni was getting ready to have Pam, so they had me go over and live with Ruby. So I lived there. And um, we got along fine. I, that's when I got to, to really uh, get acquainted with with Ruby and with Bev. And uh, so we were always really good friends, you know, a, a, after that. And we tried to keep track of each other. They were not members of the church. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and But that didn't seem to make much difference, although... Marshall had joined the church, and Noni was a member. In fact, on my uh, when I turned 11, we were talking about where we was going to go, and he, he kept saying we was going to Knott's Berry Farm. And I couldn't, I either didn't understand what he was saying, or what he, I always thought he said, not so very far. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd kind of chuckle about that. But, but then uh, in January... I was already turned 11 now. In January, uh, he, he kept me going to church and stuff, uh, probably more than I'd ever done before. And, and, and he baptized me. Oh. What was your basis of being a member of the church? Were, your, were both your parents members of the church? My mother was, but my dad was not a member. Okay, so so your mom you know, took you guys to church when you were kids. A little, yeah. Yeah, and then... You know, as you, because if you're six when she passes away. I don't have any real foundation right, by then. Yeah. You're still just doing whatever the people yeah. in your life were telling you to do. So why, 
Was it important to you whether people were or weren't as you were getting shuffled around, or did it not become important to you until Marshall encouraged that in you and had you baptized? Probably Marshall. Yeah. I, uh, but then when I, and I'm trying to remember after that year, that end of that next summer, I went back to Idaho and lived with Elizabeth again. Yeah. Then the next spring, they moved over to uh, a community called Shelton, which is near Ryrie, Idaho. Mm-hmm. And he farmed that year on this uh, property. And as they, yeah, because we, uh, I remember Christmas that year, uh, we got new sleds for Christmas. Mm. And we were out sledding before daylight. <laughs> And 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 enjoyed that area. It was an area we had outside privy, and we had water that we carried in out of, in a bucket from the canal. So uh, we didn't have a well. Uh, that's what I, some things I remember. I remember that summer uh, we had learned to roller skate at the local roller skating place in Ryrie, and uh, there was a barn with a, a, a loft, and we cleaned out that barn in the loft, uh, the hay and straw and various things, and smoothed that up enough that we could roller skate mm. in the loft of that barn. And I don't know what we must, what kind of roller skates did we have? Did we just have some clamp-ons, or did we actually have some shoe skates? I don't remember that part, but we did, that was our life. And, and at that time, was it you just you again, or were Lloyd and Dorothy just, there too? Just me. Just okay. me all the time. Interesting. But Lloyd ended up with John. Yeah. In fact, is Lloyd was with John when I went there. And I th- I'm trying to remember, was Dorothy there at that time? I remember all three of us were there at one time. Hmm. And that had to be a very challenging thing for John and Verla. So how much older than you was John? Well, he was born in 1920, and I was born in 1936, so there's 16 years. years. See, he was started his family. It was decided that I'd go with John, but John made this statement. I remember this very specifically. I don't know if it was to me direct or did I hear it secondhand. If you come here, you stay here. You don't get mad, only he used a different term, and uh, move off to somebody else. So when you're here, this is it. So that's where I was. Yeah. So then I was there. That was home right. for me the rest of my life. And you became very close with his children. Oh, yes. You were close to your ages. Well, the, Close the, enough that you were like siblings. Yeah, six years. Yeah. And I found out, oh, in recent years, that the younger children had no idea that I was the uncle. They, they, they thought really I was thought. a big brother. Oh. They thought I was the big brother. Yeah. And I thought, oh. And to this day, they all call me their uncle brother. Yeah. And it's very endearing for them to call me their uncle brother. Yeah. Um, so you're the kind of person that often tells what happened about things. So I, I've heard lots of stories. Uh, and then an emotion will pop up like just did. And it's clear that you have a lot of emotions surrounding 
things that happen in your childhood, but it's not often that you will talk about those parts. I'm wondering if you remember specifically what it was like when you found out that your mom had left for the hospital and, and wasn't coming back. Don't like, re- you I don't, don't remember, remember that? much about it. And, and even when I found out she was gone, I'm trying to think, did I show any emotion? Did, how did that affect me? Because I, I thought about that other times, and I thought, why wasn't I more emotional about something like that? She was, I, maybe I was never as close to no, my mom as no, I should have. I, I doubt it. I'm sure that... Or um, just my age difference or something. I'm sure that it affected you greatly, but there are different ways to show grief besides just sitting in your room and crying. I'm sure that you grieved. Oh, I'm sure it was difficult for you. And I think one of the reasons, because over the years, as you've talked about John and Verla and, you know, their children as being your, you know, you being their uncle, brother and stuff, there is clearly a, a great tenderness there as you discuss that time in your life and as I've thought about it I've wondered if it's because as you were going through that time of your life and trying to figure out who you were and what your place was I wonder if it affected the way that you thought of yourself and your self-esteem when you're just getting given around and you feel you know, maybe like a burden or like, does anyone ever really want me and do I belong anywhere? And then to be in a place where you finally feel like, no, I do belong here. Like, this is my place. Well, I never, I never uh, recognized at least any of that kind of uh, uh, emotional stress, but I'm sure there had to be. Yeah. As a little kid, you're probably wondering where you're, you know, where you're going to get this or where you're going to get that or you're going to have what you need, I'm sure. But, you know, as a little kid, if you don't have much, you don't expect much. Yeah, I do believe that. Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, kids who who are in poverty as kids don't necessarily recognize that they're in poverty. But um, surely you you had to understand, particularly by the time you were a teenager, that you'd had a rough go. Yeah, but I didn't make, didn't make any issue of it, or at least I don't remember making any issue of it. I was well cared for. I know we did a lot of stuff, like we did 4-H. Verla was very good with uh, 4-H. She taught us, you know, cooking skills and minor sewing skills. I mean, learned to sew on a button or mend a little hole or something of, of that nature. So we had a, 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 a good experience that way. And then we got into livestock. My first uh, 4-H was uh, John helped me and we found some uh, feeder pigs. And so we bought these feeder pigs and uh, fed them out for my 4-H project. And then we sold them. And then the next year I got a, a, a gilt and uh, we raised a, a litter of pigs with this gilt. And then from then... I don't even know what that word is. A gilt means a female pig. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we raised a litter of pigs. And then I got into calves. With, yeah, calves. I got a, uh, a dairy heifer through the Kiwanis Club. So I was awarded this calf 
And then the deal was when she had her first calf, I had to give that back to the Kiwanis Club. Then all during all this time, we were also involved with raising rabbits. So Robert and I had this rabbit project, and we had two or three does and a buck, and we, so we was raising meat rabbits. And so we'd eat, eat meat rabbits. The challenge there was I was eight, nine years older than Robert, and it seemed like I was doing all the work, <laughs> and he was getting half of the <laughs> profits, and I thought, wait a minute. This is not working out very good. I don't, I don't like this arrangement. So I said to him one day, I says, Robert, you take over the rabbits, take, do anything you want, and I am out. So I quit raising rabbits at that time. <laughs> <laughs> but I had my dairy heifer, my dairy project. Lloyd was still there. He graduated from high school, and he didn't come home. That was it. Yeah. So I took over his job on the dairy with John. John was the dairy herdsman for this, at that time, a very small dairy, and in this day and age, it's minuscule. Yeah. It's nothing, because most dairies now are at least three or four hundred cows, and many are in the thousands. So I've worked in the dairy industry all these years now, so I see all this, this change. But anyway, I remember... Uh, uh, Saving up a, a little money, or a lot of money, actually, because I didn't get much, but I, I saved it because there was no place to spend any. And one of the things that I remember about those years that I wanted to buy, and I don't know if, if I were a sophomore or a junior, somewhere in that age group, I wanted to buy me a Harley 125. I did. I That's a motorcycle. Yeah. I That's a motorcycle. That. And I had the money. I don't remember what the what the cost was in those days, but I was all excited about buying me a motorcycle. But Brother John talked me out of it, in some means, and I never got the motorcycle, and I never learned to ride a motorcycle. And to this day, I do not think I could get on a motorcycle and ride. Although, Darren Felix has let me ride his, took me over to the school parking lot to kind of teach me, but I never really got with it or got onto it. So but is that a regret that you have? Do you wish that I you wish had I, At that time. Yeah. I still think about it. If I still think about it, it means I'm still in my mind or has been in I all mean, these that's years. got some pretty big staying power. That would have been... That was something what, I wa the, wanted the early to 1950s? Yeah. 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 He was good to me, but he convinced me that me having a motorcycle was not a good thing. Hmm. But, talking about motor vehicles, we had a long driveway, and we were shoveling snow off of our driveway. And I convinced Billy that it'd be nice to have an ATV with a snowplow. Mm-hmm. So a friend of mine... Billy being my mom. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, convinced me that... I mean, I convinced her that that'd be a good thing. So a friend of mine went with me, and we went to... Up to Newton. We knew about this. Okay, you've skipped how many decades in your story now? How, what, when oh, I've, so I skipped... <laughs> I went to the idea of motor vehicles. Okay, let's back up. <laughs> well, just tell me when Let me this tell was. Me. Okay, this was... 
this was in about 1990. Okay, okay. About 1990. Anyway, we got them. Yeah, we got this motorcycle, or this ATV with the snowplow. But in the summer, you could take the snowplow off and ride it in the mountains. So we did that. But we learned that she didn't like to ride with me, and I didn't like to ride with her. So guess what? We had to have another unit. So, <laughs> so then we started with other units. I think this had to have been much later than 1990 because... I didn't graduate high school till 1997, and we never had Didn't have it then? Yeah. Oh, so maybe, wow, is that that late? It yeah, must have been just before I retired. Yeah, yeah. That we started doing this. So have I only been in them with ATVs for 20 years? Yeah. It's been a nice 20 years. I've enjoyed it. I, that's, it's one, when you started getting them and riding them around, I remember saying, it's about time that they did something that they liked to do. Because my memory of you and mom growing up was just put your head down, always make the sacrifice. There's always, you know, there's there's no need to do anything extravagant because there's always something that we're either saving for or paying off or uh, needing, needing yeah, right needing, away. Yeah. yeah, and so um, I felt like I must have been... Uh, I don't know, infuriating to you guys who were just so practical and pragmatic and being like, just, I can't know, I can't tell you how many times I heard, just hold your horses, just hold your horses, <laughs> just hold your horses. I'm like, I don't have any horses. I don't know what you're talking about, but I really want to do this thing. Uh, so when you guys, you know, made investments in something that you can say it was under the guise of doing it to shovel your driveway, but I know you just did it because you wanted it. That was part of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was glad that you did because yeah. there aren't very many things that I have seen you do just because you want to. But in the last 20 years, I have seen that you and mom went on some cruises and you went on some trips and you started doing things more for leisure and and it was really nice to see that you guys were doing that because my understanding is that up to that point your lives had been pretty much nose to the grind all the time i think there's a lot of truth to that because i always had the philosophy that you don't buy things you can't afford mm -hmm. and uh, even to this day I, I say a new car is not important. Uh, so anyway, we kind of jumped ahead on a lot of stuff, but let me go back to high school. Okay. I graduated in 1954. And my high school days, I was shy. I was probably more shy than, than I am today by any means. Yeah, I don't really know anyone who yeah. would call you shy at this point. Right. But I was shy, quite shy. And... Uh, my main things was VOAG, and I enjoyed our VOAG program. Nobody knows what that is. Vo uh, vocational Agriculture, okay. FFA. Got it. When pe people associate it with FFA because that was the club that was associated with it. It's a national club organization. The Future Farmers of America was a great ex example to me and a good experience for me. And I was able to participate in state judging contests with livestock, dairy, crops, various things. So when I got to be a, a senior in high school, my VOAG teacher suggested 
that I apply for a scholarship. I says, me, a scholarship? How? What would I qualify for? He says, Sears Roebuck offers a scholarship in agricultural um, students, for agricultural students. Oh, so I applied for a scholarship. In the meantime, I had this girlfriend that didn't want me to go to college, but I said, I... Why didn't I, she want you to go to college? She didn't think I was, could... I don't think she thought I had the wherewith to do it. I okay. mean, the, the financial wherewith, mainly. Okay. But I told her, I says, if I get this scholarship, I'm going to go to college. So I applied for the Sierra Roebuck Scholarship. I was awarded a scholarship. It paid most of my tuition for my first and second semester in school. So that was a good experience. But something that's a little different. Now, you talk about finances and what you can do and what you can't do and connections and so forth. So when I got ready to go to college, uh, and, and another fellow, uh, Hanson, was still in college, and he was going there. So I took a small bag and hitchhiked to Moscow, Idaho, from uh, Idaho Falls. Now, we didn't have I-15 at that time. So the road went up through the boonies and went to, I went to Missoula, Montana, made it, made it to Missoula by nightfall. I thought, well, if I could get into a theater and stay overnight, then I could take off the next morning. Well, I got into a theater, but I couldn't stay overnight. <laughs> so they put me out on the street in the middle of the night and I thought, well, now what do I do? So I thought, well, I've had a little rest. Maybe I will proceed. So I got out on the highway, summoned a ride in the middle of the night, and I come across some other dude that was trying to do the same thing. That was not a good thing. But we <laughs> wait, were. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean that was not a good thing? It was not a good experience to be associated with him. Okay? But why? Because two guys don't get a, a ride. When you're oh, so nothing very, bad happened. Oh, no, no, nothing okay, bad. Okay. So we waited and waited, nothing was going on. But we were near a railroad track. And I thought, wait a minute, that train is going to move on. And I don't know where it's going to go, but we're not going to stay here. So we both got on a flat car and rode all the rest of the night on a flat car. And I don't remember what time we were in the next morning. Uh, but I think we were getting first close to Kellogg, Idaho. We stopped this town. It was light by now, and I thought, well. So I went over to the uh, to a little restaurant, get me something to eat. I was carrying a small bag, and there was a gentleman in the restaurant. We st struck up a little conversation. He's where are you going? He says, well, I'm going over to Coeur Lane and then down to Moscow. He says. Do you want to help me do something? Oh, what's that? He says, well, I've got, I'm towing a car with a car, and I think if I could get you to be in the second car, and when we get to the hill, you start it and accelerate gently. Help me pull that car over the hill. Sounds easy enough. So I did. That was a funny experience by itself. Got me into Coeur d'Alene, and then from Coeur d'Alene, it's, I can't remember the exact miles, but it's about 
60 miles or 70 miles from Coeur d'Alene to Moscow. And uh, so then I got out and got me a ride on down to Moscow, and that was my beginning of my college days. Mm. And, and I think I remember you saying that, you know, because money was really tight, you never bought textbooks. Oh, this is this is later on down. Oh, down oh okay. <laughs> but uh, that's true. I did buy textbooks most of the time, but there's one year particularly that I I didn't have enough money to 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 buy the textbooks, and so I went to the library or I borrowed some or I took good notes during the class, and I did I passed all my classes, um, but it wasn't easy for me. I had many times I had three jobs going at the same time to, to help cover that. But when I got to college, I was registered at the dormitory and I went to the um, dietitian and I had written to the director of housing ahead of time because at high school I worked in the cafeteria. So I had a little bit of cafeteria experience in that regard. She said, uh, we don't know anything about you, don't have any reference to, to go on or anything. So, and all the, um, the waiters and whatever they call them in the, in the dining room is, is already committed from last spring. I said, well, I sure need to work and I need to be able to, to, to pay my way. Later that day, no, that day, the next day, the guy that was called the head hasher, he was the kind of the overseer of all the workers, came to me and he says, uh, Ron, I understand you would like to work in the dining room. I says, yes, I really would not only like to, I just about need to. He says, well, the, the dormitory is full and we have a, a need for some extra help. Would, would you like to come and learn what to do and, and help us? I said, sure, I'd like to do that. Well, to make a long story short, that turned into a four-year job. In fact, the last year, I was the head hasher. Hmm. So, except for the very last month of the year, I was had employment for my, my board for all those years. A blessing to me, for sure, for sure. And... Uh, I, I uh, got a degree. I don't think anybody's looked at my grades or anything like that. <laughs> but they know I have a degree. Yeah. And that was the important thing. And so um, uh, it, it moved me on to, you know, good jobs along the way. Uh, I don't know if I, well, I was going to say I don't know if I always needed it, but based on my, it gave me my first job. And then it was experience that pushed me on from it. I had my degree in, in dairy production. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've worked in the dairy industry all, all my life. And I moved around a little bit. And uh, they say, uh, well, you moved a lot. And I said, yeah, but I haven't changed occupations. Yeah, yeah. Just, just changed jobs yeah. within my occupation. So... Um one of the funny stories that Darren and I like to tell is how um, when so when people get married within a LDS temple, 
the way it usually works is before the everyone enters the sealing room, which is where the actual ceremony takes place, the groom will be in a waiting room. And in our case, Darren was in the waiting room with you and his dad, who were going to enter in and and you guys were going to be the witnesses for our wedding. And so at that point, Darren's dad didn't know you all that well. And so while Darren's sitting there waiting to get married, his dad turns to you and says, so Ron, what do you do? And you explain uh, your job of artificial insemination breeding cattle. It was jarring for him to hear the words insemination while he was sitting in the temple getting ready to get married. <laughs> He always thought that was really funny. He 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 was sitting there thinking like I'm about to get married because then you and Nate started having this conversation <laughs> back and forth. Well, what how, how is that accomplished? Blah, 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 back and forth, and he's just like this is my this is my wedding day conversation. Okay, but <laughs> but yeah, you spent a lifetime basically being a cow matchmaker, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in fact. To elaborate on that just a little bit, um, my my last twenty years with Select Sires, my my job, or my yeah, my job was called uh, Dairy Marketing Coordinator. Well, one of the jobs that I did as a coordinator was that I did cow matchmaking. Yeah. On the computer, I I would go and look at the cow and evaluate her on various traits with numbers. And then I put that number back in the computer and find a bull that matched those numbers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I did hundreds, yeah, thousands of those. And they don't, I don't think they do much of that now. They do it a little bit different. The dynamics of the procedure is, uh, is a little bit different. So there's still, this process is still there. The purpose is to make new calves. Yeah, yeah. A new generation. With, with the best traits possible. Yeah, that's what, yeah, that's what it's all about. Um, okay, I want to step away a little bit from the chronological stuff and ask how you're doing now. I want to talk about mom and, I mean, my goal is not to, like, make you emotional, but I interviewed mom in early March, I think. And then she passed away April 8th, and now we're midway through August. So um, I'm wondering how you're doing. Well, uh, I'm doing quite well. I'm taking care of my house with little help here and there from family. Um, I'm here alone most of the time. Um, I try to stay busy. I have a nice garden going. I'm helping a neighbor boy learn learn how to garden in part of my garden. Um, we're not as close as I'd like to be with him as far as working closely, um, but we're we're making some progress. Uh, he has a nice garden going with his, his zucchini and squash, and he's had some beans and and he's had some uh, uh, peas, sugar pod peas. And he's got some uh, cucumbers, and he's got some 
Dad, 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 I just asked you how you're doing, oh, and I'm now you're you. telling me about the neighbor's peas within 30 seconds. <laughs> I want to know how you're doing. Okay, I'm doing good because I'm staying busy. That's yeah. what it's all about. All right, but I'm 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 doing. I don't know what else I could do. Here's here's let me give you some context for for what I'm trying to get at. Here I am. I've been married to Darren for 20 years. And I feel like we have become so integral into each other's lives that I, I almost feel as though he is an, an extension of me in some ways. And that's 20 years. And you and mom spent 60 years. 60, One. nearly 61. I mean, a week away, basically, from yeah. 61. I don't know if maybe your mode of communication is if it starts to bring up too strong an emotion then we deflect a little bit but like what what was your reaction when you guys went to that doctor's appointment where the doctor said I wouldn't expect more than three months well because <laughs> you guys have been through a lot together well you've, wait, you've wait, done wait. your cancer yeah. her heart open heart surgery and right. heart attacks and uh and then i mean as far as just like having those moments where you had had moments in the past where it's like could this be the end is this it and you kept making it through those making it through okay i see what you're getting at well those are uh, situations that you are there to support one another I mean, we've been doing this for 60 years. We went through seven childbirths. We've gone through a miscarriage. We've gone through all these kind of things that are emotional events. Losing a job, uh, all of, you know, that's part of life. And I think, to me, it, it has got to the point that things happen. You just make the best of each thing that happens as they happen. You don't detract from the love that you have for each other, or the. In fact, I think it grows. I think it expands when you when you uh, uh, face these challenges together. It makes a difference in your. I mean, yeah, yeah, it just builds your 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 closeness, and uh, and that's what we've done. And we, and the nice thing for us because of our feelings for each other, we've always worked together. We didn't always agree with everything, but we, know we didn't make no big deal of it. Uh, in other words, um, her example of her hobbies, not necessarily my hobbies, but they were hers, and so supported them. Uh, the, uh, one example is her, her, her bird collection her stuffed birds, and she always got those from places we'd visited. I was thinking of uh, historical places or something like that that we'd visited. She'd find something. She got to the point that she had a list so that she wouldn't duplicate what she already had. So that was fun. That sounds so much like mom. She wouldn't want to do it. And she wanted everything that she got to be as authentic as it could be. Not just a not just a toy, but as authentic, uh, rather it's a, a, a cow, a bear, a 
a squirrel or whatever, but she wanted it to be as authentic as could be. And that was her hobby. That was her fun thing. When she'd go somewhere, she would look for some of these things. So these are the kind of things that makes a companionship a companionship. So fun, so fun. And um, it got, you know, it got to the point where she had more and more trouble navigating. Oh, we did that cruise last year, in other words, 2019 in January, and Shirley and Margie, I was going to say went with us. No, they took us, and <laughs> so so we could go, and we had a nice time. Uh, we had some limitations of, you know, what we could do, but but we were able to do it. We went on cruises. We went to uh, Alaska. We went to Norway. We went to Bahamas. You know, they, that was a short trip, but, but we, we did enough cruises and travel, like foreign travel, that we had the, the feel for it. So yeah. we, we, we could enjoy those things together. But it more, the most important thing we did together was our mission. New York Rochester Mission. For the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we uh, served at the sites in, in Palmyra, New York. And it was, it was such a great experience. And we met so, so many nice people, of course, including the ones, the couples that we worked with and the single sisters that, that served at the sites also. And uh, it's been fun to watch them develop and grow forth and have families and, you know, because it's been 15 years since we were there. So they've all moved on in their families. But these are the things that make for a great relationship. And I have, and I worry about, not worry, I think about people who have challenges, um, divorces, don't get along very well, whatever the case might be. I have this, I'll bring it out now because now's the best time for it. My special counsel to newlyweds is, is do not be selfish. You look at, if you want to look at couples that have problems, look at who is the most selfish or is both of them selfish. They can't get along because mm -hmm. they, they want something that they can't have, but they insist on having it. So that's... Yeah, that very often can be a, a huge problem. I, I, yeah. yeah, it can be a, a problem. I, I see it. I mean, when I've, when I've known challenges of, of people who have difficulties, I think, okay, and I don't always know the details, but that's the thing that runs in my mind. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's not fair to say that, but well, it's I think... about as straightforward as I know how to be. Well, and that's pretty straightforward. You know how to be pretty straightforward. <laughs> I, I, you know, we talk about being shy in high school, and I was. I'm going to back up just a little bit because I'm going to tell you what happened. When I went to college, I decided I was not going to be shy. I don't know how or why, and I started talking kind of boisterous and things like that. So I got, so I was given a nickname. And my nickname is still with me amongst my college friends. In fact, when I get, went to get my first paycheck from a 
from a friend's father that I worked for during college. He didn't know what my name was. He, he always called me by my nickname. So that is, uh, that's where it kind of started. You're not going to say your nickname? Rough. I guess I have to say. It. So people didn't just call you Rough Ron. They called you Rough. Uh, like they that called was me Rough name. Ron. They, I, hi, Rough. So that was it. It's so interesting to think about um, all the life that you lived so long before I came along. This This is something that blows my mind. The time for me to be able to say this is quickly nearing its end. But you were 42 when I was born, right? Yeah. I'm not even quite 42 years old, which means even at this point in my life, you have lived more life without me than you have lived with me in it. I think that we go through phases through life. In each new phase, we become what we need to be in that phase. And it's, I feel a little bit of a loss that there are people you've been that I've never been able to know. You know, yeah, like that's that's evolution. That's the way things roll and roll. Yeah, and and we we wouldn't want to be without you, but it's sure glad that we've had you for forty years. <laughs> yeah, but think of all the others, like Rhonda. We've had sixty years. Yeah, we haven't had her a, a lot of um, for for nearly forty of that because she's lived somewhere else. So we haven't been very close, right. but we've had you close. Right. I know. It's been interesting. You know, our family dynamics uh, are often fascinating to other people. My icebreaker at parties when we're meeting people and they say, say something about yourself. I always say my grandfather was born in 1875 because I feel confident no one else in the room is going to be able to say that. Even if they're older than me, probably they can't say that. So that puts me at the way tail end because you're the youngest and I'm the youngest. Your dad was, what, 63 when you were born or something like that? So I'm I'm wondering what they called you rough. I mean. Why did they call me rough? Yeah, why did that? Because I talked rough. I talked, I was trying to, uh, trying (laughs) to express my, myself. And I, I think I just was kind of talking gruff. And. Were you and crude? I, huh? Were you crude? Oh, I didn't think so. Maybe I was a little bit crude. I'm just wondering. <laughs> In those days, as a college, as a college no, freshman, I maybe. I and was. I don't judge you if you were. I have a little propensity for just a just a tad of obscenity. And, and I don't know. Is that when or or after that? When did I become the person that says exactly what's on my mind? I don't know, but you gave that to all of us, I think. I know people talk about me being uh, very outspoken, and I try to be outspoken, but I try not to be rude about it. I, I just get so tired of talk, people talking, talking, and then you say, what in the heck did they say? <laughs> no, I know. And, I, and I get I, frustrated because I feel like uh, particularly women are trained to speak in code like we're supposed to not say what we actually mean but then say in a way that someone's be able to figure out what we actually mean and, and then and, and, and big mistakes make it, i 
I have people say like, I know you said you wouldn't mind if I didn't show up to your party, but I also knew it would hurt your feelings if I didn't show up. I'm like, no, if I say I don't mind, I don't mind. Do not read anything else into it. Because I'm not reading anything else into what you say either. So if you want me to be getting a specific message, you better just say what you mean. Yeah. It can be really frustrating. Yeah. I tell you, I, uh, I don't know where I got this from. I might have got it partially from Brother John because he never minced words either. I mean, if he said something, he probably meant it just exactly the way he said it. And he used a lot more cruder language than I do. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's just kind of leave it at that. I, <laughs> I, uh, we talk about all these things that happen. We're, we're moving on. What I miss the most is having the sociability to, to come home and you talk on the phone and say, or whatever. And you, you kind of miss being able to have somebody to talk to. Just report to, so to speak. You mean that's one of the things you miss? Oh with yeah, mom being gone. Oh yeah, with yeah. her being gone, and I'm so I'm socializing a little. Yeah. So why not? And it's really unfortunate that it all had to happen during a pandemic because oh, it's yeah. not like you can go to church and chat with people. Um, I've you know when I talk to you on the phone, you'll call or you'll tell me that. Uh, yeah, I just wandered around the neighborhood looking for people who might be in their yard. <laughs> so yeah, seriously. Yeah, seriously, I do. Well, uh, it, in, in part, not intentionally necessarily. It, it's fun. I don't know. I jump on a four-wheeler, but I can drive up and down the neighborhood. And I can stop and talk to somebody that's out in their yard. Or I can in inspect the new homes that are being built south of me over here. You know, I think... Did I get the right job when I got my job? And I think back on my life of different jobs that I may have liked to do. Yeah. I'd like to have been a civil engineer. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see things happen. I'd like to see things built and, you know, builder. Uh, did I want to be a house builder? Not necessarily, but I... I built my own garage. Yeah. I can do a lot of stuff. Uh, and I learned it from watching others or seeing, you know, trying something. Um, I did most of my own garage uh, except for trusses and roof uh, that was just a little more than I could handle. And uh, I have a neighbor friend here who built a house a couple years ago. And uh, I was in his house in the watching the building process and um, out of respect he just called me his uh, building supervisor <laughs> so I just watched it and and you know I, I knew what was going on and he didn't care but there are sometimes that could be considered kind of out of place so uh, <laughs> if they if they don't want me around they say hey Ron well, you've always been a very hands-on, curious guy. If something's happening, you want to uh, be a part of it. I, I remember when you were staying in our house uh, during the time that you were getting your radiation, oh. and you came to my, you came to me looking a little sheepish, and you're like, um, "I pulled your mirror off your wall." 
I didn't realize how you had had it secured. I wanted to know if anything was behind it, so I looked behind it, and now I can't get it back secured the way that it was. <laughs> because you just had to know. You had to know if there, how it was on there and if it was how it was secured. And um, I, I have, I have a trait, and I don't know if it's learned or inherited or what, but um, I have the same trait that if that if I think of a project and my brain can pretty well work through how I think about how it's gonna go, I feel pretty confident that I can just do it. Even if I've never done it before, I say, I can figure that out, I'll figure that out. And sometimes I just get started and figure it out as I go. Um, and, A lot of projects go like that. <laughs> yeah, but that makes Darren really uncomfortable. Like he, he, well, he's got to know the end from the beginning. Yeah. And if it's something that he doesn't already know how to do and he can't picture all the steps beforehand, it makes him very uncomfortable to think about doing that. But um, I want to ask if there's, if, you know, as you look back on 60 years with your wife, I mean, that is such a long time. What do you feel like she taught you the most? What did she teach me the most? Patience. She sure did teach me patience. <laughs> and she taught me... Uh, when you say she taught you patience, you mean you were forced to be patient with her or she was a good example of she patience? She was a good... both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she was a, always a good example. She was such a compassionate, loving person. She wouldn't... She wouldn't do or say anything if she thought it would offend anyone in the least little bit, to the point of almost overdoing it. But she, you talk to anybody that knows her, and they'll say her, her best trait was her compassion for other people. Maybe that's, maybe that's part of why she was, uh, asked to be on the Compassionate Service Committee. Mm. Uh, she has done so many things. She's been a Relief Society president two or maybe three times, especially with that. She is so concerned about everybody's well-being that it was almost too much for her. Yeah. Yeah, I got the sense that she found it very overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, instead of... Instead of just being able to uh, uh, visit with somebody and kind of get them over the over the uh, crisis, uh, temporary crisis, she wanted to solve their their problem for them, and that she couldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, patience, yes, she was very patient. She's very patient with me. She's very um, spiritual. She loved the Lord. She was so. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll say it. When she got ready to die, she was not afraid. She talked about it ahead of time. Not just the last little bit, but for years. I mean, uh, she knew she had some health issues, and and we just kept thinking, well, we'll just live with them the best we can as long as we can. And at some point, we, uh, we're we gone. Mm -hmm. And when she passed away, it was such a a pleasant experience. It was hard to, it was hard to cry, because, mm. because it was so beautiful, to mm. me, 
just to watch her pass. I just, I was there, she was right there. We didn't hug or hold or anything, it just, we'd already realized that it was going to happen sooner or later, and I'm just glad that it happened sooner than too much later. Yeah. Because uh, she was already done. Yeah. She was ready to go. Yeah. She met her maker, and she was, she was um, very much in tune and ready. It's it all a great experience. Hmm. That's that's a pretty remarkable assessment that you can look at it that way. Does it does it give you more peace when you think about when it's your time to go? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm ready to go when it's time. I'm not ready. I've got other things I'd like to do, and I'm I'm such a social person. I I just love my friends, and I I'm, I don't know if I should bring this out, but I have a neighbor that doesn't like me. Yeah. And that's that bothers me more than about anything. Yeah. And I can't if I'd done something wrong that I knew I did something wrong. That's something else. But I don't know that I did anything wrong that should cause that and so to me that's I I, I can't worry about it but it has stressed me <laughs> yeah I know it has because I talk about me, it all the time you've, talk, you've talked to me about it several times but I think um, you know nobody likes not being liked and I, and I also think that for you in particular you draw a lot of your own value into what you provide in this community. I know that your next door neighbors on the right have little kids and they call you, the little kids are, are always like, let's go see Ron, How? let's give something to Ron, they love Ron. And your neighbor through the way that you go and help all the time, you know, yesterday as you were talking to me about him because he's in his 90s and he needs a lot of help. You go help with his yard. You help go talk to him. And as you talked about him, you teared up and said, I love that man so much. And you are, you've been in this house for almost 40 years. And you have become an integral part of this community. And I think that there's a lot of comfort that you draw from being such an integral part of this community. I guess that's why. So I'm to not, have a neighbor not like you yeah. really sticks in your craw. And to, and and I've lived here long enough that I hate to leave. Yeah. I mean, I hate to abandon this community and to go somewhere else. There's been a lot of times in my life that I didn't mind leaving that place to go to the next one. But I've been here so many years now that uh, this is me. Yeah. This is me. Yeah. So. Uh, so, I, I met I met a, a, an elderly lady who lives in Caldwell. She's not going to leave her place, and I'm not going to leave my place. Okay, you got to. When you say met, you mean like you've sort of been doing an online dating thing. Well, if that's yes, that's what you call it. You've been corresponding. Yeah, we talked to each other. Yeah. And we've met. Yeah. So that's what that's when you really say, "Wow," you know, but. Old people. She doesn't want to leave her spot. You don't want to leave. Yeah, we we still have uh, a desire to socialize. Yeah, and uh, so. Yeah, well, I think that's a good reminder for 
the rest of us who are in the hustle and bustle of our lives, people who are doing the building phase of their lives, to remember that those who, you know, are are past that phase and are either alone or like whether someone's single or if they're married or whatever, it's important for us to remember that just because someone has become older doesn't mean they don't need people in their lives anymore. Like it's up to us to make sure that they continue to get that socialization and and stuff. Life doesn't stop just because you lose one of your, your companions. I have seen couples that the, the one that's left is so devastated that life is crappy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't want it that way. I want, it to, I want to move on with life and be happy and, and, and let it be that way. Yeah. I think that you and Mom both have a really amazing ability to be able to see life that way because... I really, I think I would have a really hard time after 60 years to be able to to view it in such a pragmatic way. And I think that's a blessing because I can be prone to letting my emotions rule my actions and stuff like that. Well, before we go, I want to ask, um, as you look back on your life, if there are moments that really stick out that either you feel like taught you something really specific or f- that were just really hard, or the things that you're the most proud of, um, or if you have, you know, a motto that you try to live by, or any of those things, any highlights that we missed. You mentioned a variety of things there that we we follow a lot of that stuff, not realizing that that's really in the back of our mind that that's what we're doing. Yeah, we have some motto, or I have a motto, be helpful. Serve where you can. Uh, I think that's my big motto because I I feel, yeah, I think about this a lot because I think that's my desire is to be able to serve somebody. And I don't necessarily get up every morning and say, who can I serve today? Because I think there are some people who in their mind are, I know a lady particularly, I think she in her mind says, who can I do something for today? And I don't necessarily turn it that way, but I'm saying, how can I be a service today in my family or in my neighborhood or whatever? In the back of my mind, I'm saying, I got stuff that needs to be done. But is there somebody else that needs my help? So I'm willing. And, uh, you know, over the years, I'm, I, I know I've helped lots and lots of people move and stuff. But the Elders Quorum doesn't call on me to help move anymore. Yeah. They say, shouldn't. hey, you've done your... No, they don't say you've done your share. In their, in their mind, they're saying he's old enough that he shouldn't have to do those things. Yes, I agree with that. But I can still do a lot of stuff. You the sure fact can. is, I can go help... But I don't have to carry and stuff. I can say, hey, this, this, organize, you know, some of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I, yeah, that's my attitude. My philosophy is make the best of every day. Make the best of every day and take care of yourself um, emotionally and eat well. 
I my my last thing that I'm gonna say is when Royce left on his mission, I was thirteen ish, yeah. twelve. And when you said goodbye to him, you broke down and cried. And I remember thinking that is the first time I've ever seen my dad cry, for sure. But over the last year, it comes out a lot more often. And you don't break down, but I see the emotion rise up. You hear it in my voice. Yeah. Yeah, I can feel it too. Um, Even while we've been sitting here talking about some things. Right. What, what do you think it is that makes it that that is more easily unlocked in you now than it was, you know, back when I was a kid? I think in the early years, I was more stern with a lot of things. And so uh, emotions didn't come all that great or easily. But I think as you get a little older, as I've gotten a little older, I've re recognized all the value of every, you know, every individual and every situation that... Uh, that you experience becomes pretty important. Yeah. Pretty important along the way. So I guess I kind of wonder if that's what it is. Uh, you may see something different, but that's the way I r recognize. And you know, all of my kids have such talents. Each one has their own, you know, ability and so forth. I, th I think of Rhonda and her situation with her family and her in-laws and taking care of her in-laws that's not easy and then surely with her challenges losing a child having an autistic son that's not easy and margie and darren margie is is so talented in, in keeping things together she has a great family and a great grandchildren a great grandchildren family okay so all of these things add up. Weston has a whole different situation. He's now an empty nester. Well, most of them are, but an empty and nester. And now he drives his and nest now he, around. And now he lives in a, in a trailer house uh, that he drags around the, the United States. By choice. Yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. by choice. Yeah. And works from it. He's still working. Look at Sandra. She has four girls, four beautiful girls, each one so cotton-picking independent <laughs> that, that they have to live separately. Okay. Then you got what? Royce. Three handsome boys. College graduate, a high school graduate, and, and, and one that's just getting ready to go in high school. A great, a great career. I'm so proud of his military accomplishments, his career as military, lieutenant colonel, retired, uh, got a what appears to me to be the greatest job in the world where he's at now hmm. in a field that he absolutely loves. You know, hook, yeah, line, this is and my brother who is a literal rocket scientist. <laughs> That's so. right. Uh, and then, of course, Joni with with her beautiful kids, so talented, so talented. And, and, and she promotes them, and that's why they're talented. She lets them 
move in their direction. And, um, and then for Joni to be doing these podcasts and stuff, what a, what a challenge. I haven't listened to all of them, but the ones I have listened to are pretty educational. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. They're, they're, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm anxious to hear Jen's because I know Jen. Yeah. And uh, so, and you guys have had such a great relationship for all these years mm-hmm. since college days. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. You and mom have really different personalities, but uh, I think the thing that we all feel like we got from you was yes, this no nonsense, just just state your case and be done, you know? And this, it's a, it's a quiet thing, but it's just an understanding that integrity isn't negotiable. Like, we never question your intent or your, you know, like I remember when you and mom were having your 50th wedding anniversary party, you asked a neighbor, uh, like, three weeks in advance if you could borrow their TV to show your big slideshow at the party. And then it's the night of the party and nobody is showing up. There's no TV. We're freaking out. We're trying to call the neighbor. And um, finally we contact him and he's like, oh, oh, I forgot. He asked me that one time and then I, I never heard from him again. But you were like, I asked him if he'd do it. He said he'd do it. Why do I have to keep reminding you? <laughs> because, and the reason is because when someone asks you to do something, it's in your calendar, it's in your mind, and you are there to do it. You don't need to be reminded. And that's why. And um, and I, I just... It almost offends me if somebody comes back and says, remember? Right. I mean... But this, the rest of us need at that. This, at, this, at this age... Yeah, I probably need to be reminded of some things. But there was times when, hey, we already talked about this. Let's not talk about it again. Let's just move on. Right. And uh, that... But do you understand that most people don't function that way? Yeah. Like, most people need and appreciate reminders. I'm a person who needs and appreciates reminders. (laughs) And I probably... So that's that's a quality to a fault. Right, but um, it is a but it's a quality. Yeah. It's a quality. I know that we have said it. There's been plenty of times to show and express love, but I want it to be like you know, recorded for all time that I love you, and I think that you gave me all the tools that I needed, you and mom, to be a really successful adult, and and I'm really proud of the life that you've lived. That's great. I appreciate that too because. You were our baby, and you were able to get some things that, that a lot of the other girls didn't. Well, you know, like where I fall in the family, I hear a lot how spoiled I was. But then I listen to all the older siblings talk, and I feel a great sense of loss because they had each other growing up, and uh, there was a lot of, a lot of different. companionship there that I didn't get. So I think it all comes out in the wash itself. Yeah. It's okay. Okay, well, thank you for being willing to do this, and uh, and I think that this is going to be a treasure for a lot of people. Thank you. And now it's time for a bright spot. My bright spot today is a little bit bittersweet, and that's okay. About a year ago, I posted on Facebook these words. 
it's possible to feel sad and grateful at the same time. And I'm going through things in my personal life right now that feel pretty heavy. And then take a look at the world that we're all living in. Some of that feels pretty heavy too. And as I have been thinking about both of my parents, thinking about my mom on her birthday, listening to my dad talk about my mom, thinking about my dad, um, it's so interesting the way that we can think of memories that live in the past. They have nothing to do with now. And yet the fact that my mom is gone now makes those memories hurt a little bit more, which doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, as I think about my mom holding me in the rocking chair and singing to me as a young child, I don't know why that memory should be changed by the fact that she is gone now. It lives so far in the past. And yet, it does make my heart hurt a little bit, even as it feels joyful. When I was 16 years old, my dad took me down the Colorado River on, I believe it was eight days and over 200 miles of journeying through the Grand Canyon, through some of the biggest rapids in the United States. It was idyllic. It was amazing. It made me feel grown up. It taught me that I can do hard things. And I remember sometimes being on that pontoon raft, seeing those huge rapids coming up and knowing that the only way to the other side was through. I've felt that feeling many times in my life. I remember feeling that feeling specifically when I was pregnant with my first child, watching my burgeoning belly and realizing there is only one way to not have this thing inside me anymore. And I was scared to do it. But the only way to the other side was through. I have such fond memories of that time going down the river with my dad and my uncle and my cousin, along with several other people, uh, waking up with a scorpion in my sleeping bag, using the bathroom out in the open, laughing, feeling that thrill, the adventure. It was such a great time for me in my life. And I love the person that I was then. I love that little body that I don't have anymore. <laughs> now I'm a 41-year-old woman with a chronic illness. And this past week, some dear friends, my book club ladies who I adore, invited me to go on a tubing trip down the Weber River. Now, this was a much shorter trip, one and a half hours, and the rapids were minuscule in comparison to those rapids that I ran back when I was 16 years old. However, I recognized quite a difference between the person who went down the Colorado River when I was 16 and the person who floated down the Weber River at 41. Very early on in our tubing experience, I hit a log that I had not seen coming. I was not paying attention and capsized. And my legs got entangled in some branches that were under the water while the current continued to push me and my little tube that I was trying to hold on to. I quickly disentangled. I was fine. 
There was a little moment of panic as I realized I couldn't touch, and I had to wait a little while to get myself back in the tube. And from then on, I was on high alert. I did not want to capsize again. I almost lost a shoe, and the current was fast enough that I realized there was real danger involved. Also, I understood that my body is not as capable as it used to be. My arms and legs and abs were responsible for making sure that my tube went in the direction that it needed to go, that I didn't get caught up on trees or rocks or logs, and that I didn't capsize over the obstacles and rapids that were in my path. I recognized that a past me would have had a purely joyful, unafraid experience, and that a current me was much more cautious and much more focused on avoiding danger. And yet, I am so glad that I had the experience. I was able to recognize the sadness that I feel that I'm not in that old body, but I'm so grateful to have been remembered, to have been invited, and to be alive and to have been able to do that and say, I did it. I'm not dead yet. (laughs) And there were moments of bliss. There were moments where I looked up at the cloudless blue sky and thought how beautiful it looked. Moments where the sound of the river was beautiful music for my soul. And the joy that I had that my friends had invited me along. There have been long months and years of solitude for me in the last decade, which only serves to highlight my gratitude when I am able to go out. This experience was the whole of my entire summer excursions, vacations, fun. But I'm going to let it carry me. And I'm going to remember that it's okay to be sad and grateful at the same time. Be a light and say what is truth.